This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Before today's show, I want to clarify something from my introduction last week. In it, I said that anti-immigrant protests have taken place in Germany after a group of Syrian refugees attacked women in Cologne. This is incorrect for two reasons. First, the New Year's Eve attack on women occurred in cities beyond Cologne, such as Hamburg and Frankfurt. Secondly, and perhaps more importantly, the perpetrators of these attacks were not only Syrian refugees, as I stated. They also included men from other countries, many of whom live in Germany legally, and from men who are actually German citizens. This matters because I do not want to support the myth that Syrians fleeing the war, or any foreigner for that matter, are somehow bad people committing crimes and should therefore be excluded from seeking asylum. That is simply a myth, and I'm sorry for supporting such a discourse, when in fact all it does is help fan the fire of extremist and xenophobic sentiments. Again, I'm sorry for speaking incorrectly, and I'll try my best to correct the record whenever a mistake occurs. Okay, on with the show. My guest today is Jane Kenway, Emeritus Professor at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. For the past several years, Professor Kenway has led a team of scholars and students from around the world on a multi-sided global ethnography of elite schools in 12 countries. The study explores the global forces, connections, and imaginations on elite schools and hopes to enhance our understanding of how many national and transnational leaders are formed through their education. The project has resulted in many publications, which you can find links to on our website. I spoke with Professor Kenway in January on one of her recent pieces about how she and her team conducted this research, comparing more traditional forms of ethnography with her use of multi-sided global ethnography. Jane Kenway, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you for inviting me to participate in this extremely interesting project you're doing. You've been working on a project for the last few years um, that looks at elite schools around the globe. Um, and you're using something called multi-sided ethnography. And, I, and I'd like to really dive into that topic today. Um, but perhaps to start, it might be best to talk more about um, a more traditional form of ethnography. Um, could you explain a little bit about um, what the standard or the traditional form of ethnography is? Uh, Yes. Uh, I should uh, also say, though, before I do that, is what we've done is we've called it multi-sided global ethnography. And I can explain that to you later, but it's important to have the global in there, and I'll I'll pick up what I mean later. But um, if we talk about the traditional view of ethnography, and that's an extremely um, general way to talk, Um, then it's usually associated with anthropologists and it's usually associated with um, a set of people who have gone from one country to another, often, usually actually, from, say, the global north to the global south or from the global um, west to the global east to uh, to study people... Uh, who are considered to be of different cultures and different sorts of communities. So um, traditional ethnography um, 
it, that I would think of it in that way, and I would associate it with with um, people like Malinowski and people like Goetz, and and they're the sort of major figures in that space. But what I do think it's important to think say with that particular way of thinking about ethnography associated with um, anthropology is that it views space and time and mobility in certain ways that are very, very uh, clear in the heads of those who practice, who practice this sort of research. So if you like, I could say a little bit about each of those. Sure, yes. How, how do anthropologists and, and the traditional form of ethnography understand the concepts of space and time and mobility? Yeah. I mean, the, the first thing to, to note is that or invariably it begins with a particular notion of a field or a site, the research field or the research site. And in terms of spatiality, that site is, is usually seen as somewhat self-contained. It's usually seen to, um, to be small in scale. Uh, it, and it's usually seen to be somewhat enclosed. So um, when people think about the field or the site, they usually think about small-scale spaces. And with regard to those spaces, they're usually seen to contain you know, a particular culture or a particular community. Uh, it, it's usually um, the way in which people in that uh, space are thought about is, is as insiders or as natives, for want of a better term, and clearly a better term is needed. And these people, the interest of the ethnographer or the anthropologist is in these particular uh, people, their point of view, their culture, and, and their communities, and so on and so forth. The, um, when uh, ethnographers or anthropologists go into these particular spaces, they are usually seen as outsiders uh, who, who participate as and who try to become sort of insiders, outsiders within, uh, who try to participate in the everyday aspects, everyday and every nightly aspects of these, these particular spaces. But they also understand themselves as entering a space for a particular period and leaving that space for a leaving that space once their research is done. So in terms of time, the, the research is, the traditional ethnographer or the traditional anthropologist will see their work um, as being conducted over an extended period of time in one particular place. And the notion of extended time or what you know, sometimes uh, we refer to as deep time is what's seen to be important. So you have to be in place, at, in, in a particular place or space, and you have to be there for quite a while. And in order, and as a function of being there for quite a while, the idea is that you will get to know in a, an extremely intimate manner the ways of life of this particular group and, and, uh, and the community. Equally, the, if you think about the work of the ethnographer, the work is supposed, is, is supposed to be a sort of temporality of slowness. In other words, you don't rush around like a mad thing in the field. You just 
quietly and slowly um, immerse yourself in the field over this extended time and get to understand it, get to appreciate it bit by bit by bit. In terms of um, in the third concept was the concept of, of mobility. And again, the, it's important to, to note that, that traditional ethnographies or anthropologies are, are not interested particularly in mobility. So in movement, other than the movement, it occurs within the spaces that are being studied. So they're not interested in people going in and out of these particular spaces. And they're not even necessarily interested in movement over time, you know, across time. Often these ethnographies are only interested in what's going on in the time in which people are in the field and that they're able to describe what's happened when they're there. So it's, they're not about coming and going. Um, it's not about um, uh, the, the people who are coming in, the, the routes they may, may take, their travels to and from the particular places they're in. It's about what you know, um, uh, is called the, the roots of the place, in a way, looking deeply into a place, not looking at the, the connection between these particular spaces and places and, and other locations and the movements that might happen between, between those. These, these particular tropes um, have obviously been around for quite some time, um, and it's all, always about uh, achieving this coveted, thick description in the analysis or in the description um, that the ethnographer and, or anthropologist writes. Um, do you see this form of ethnography and anthropology uh, alive and well today? Yes, I think it is, and um, it is alive, and it, it is well. It's extremely well, uh, although there's all sorts of, the there's all sorts of um, things that are, are problematising it, which we can get to if you like, but it, it, it is maintained as a sort of sacred form of ethnography, and those particular tropes that I've mentioned are, under you know, are understood as the sort of sacred tropes, if you like, and so... There is a sort of purist notion of what an ethnography should be, and they're, they're the keys to it. And people who practice that and develop, uh, you know, what gets called thick descriptions, are, are putting out really interesting work. Uh, and that work is often very descriptive, very intimate on detail, very engaging in the ways it's written up. But it is a particular type of ethnography that uh, has been challenged by all sorts of developments in social theory, uh, not just social theory, in theory, in gen theory generally, ge geographical theory, social theory, cultural theory and so forth. And it's also been challenged be in part because ethnography has travelled as a method into other disciplines, sociology, education, cultural studies, and those disciplines are asking different sorts of questions and adopting different sorts of practices that aren't necessarily as pure as the more traditional anthropological purists would like. And this brings us to the work that you're doing, which you've called the multi-sided global ethnography, but that derives from the term 
multi-sided ethnography. So perhaps the starting point is to, to dig into this notion of multi-sided ethnography and how it's different from this purest form of ethnography. Yeah, the, the, uh, the, the idea of multi-sided ethnography came from George Marcus and his key uh, text or key article came out in the mid-1990s, where he put this idea forward. Now, he he did a whole number of really interesting things in ethnography around similar times, where he's trying to bring contemporary thinking in other fields into the anthropological field and to look at different ways, not just of conducting ethnography, but also writing ethnography. Hence, he was very interested in the poetics of ethnography, for example. But in terms of multi-sided ethnography, he was trying to, he was trying to um, look at, he was engaging with world systems theory and, and very critical of it. Equally, he was trying to look at, look at, the ways in which particular bounded sites may be understood in, to use Apadurai's term actually, as unbounded. How they might, how they might, how sites might be on the move as opposed to staying still. How, how we don't just go into a particular place and look at a particular thing or a particular set of events, but how we might follow certain things as they move. So the trope that he developed, which for which he's extremely famous, is this idea of following. So you follow the thing, or you follow the people, or you you follow the idea, or you follow the conflict. And in following, you move between sites. You don't just stay in one site. And as you move, you study the ways in which the thing, or the people, or the conflict, or whatever, have changed in the in these um, in these different sites as you as you as you observe them in the process of following. Now, that was his original idea, and a number of people have picked up multi-sided ethnography and taken it in a, in a bunch of different directions. And um, so there's a whole set of, you know, what I think of as second-generation multi-sided ethnographers who will seek to develop the idea, to practice it somewhat differently, to explain the, you know, what it's seeking to do and so forth. And um, the... What these people have done who are doing this sort of work are also looking at not just the question of following, but, but also saying, well, multi-sided ethnography can look at a number of different sites, um, not just because you're following something, but because you're interested in the connections between those sites. So you might begin, if you're doing it in terms of, in the original way that... Um, that uh, he talked about, it was you followed something from, from here to here. But this other way of looking at it suggests that you can, at the outset, have multiple sites and, and then look at how they function uh, as, as, in, as separate site, as sites in their own right in some ways, but also how the connections between them lead the sites to, to have commonalities with each other or differences from with each other. So there's many, there's different manifestations of the ways in which multi-sided ethnographies are conducted and second generation uh, people are the ones who are exploring what these might look like. Let's return to some of the tropes that anthropology and ethnography works with, the space, the time, the mobility. How do some of these tropes differ in the, the 
work of multi-sided ethnography, even though it's quite a diverse field, as you said. Yeah, they work. Um, they work very differently, and uh, and this is in part because, with regard to each of those tropes, different say theories of space have emerged, or different theories of time have emerged, or mobility, or whatever, have emerged to problematize these original ways of thinking about about those concepts. So for example, with regard to space, uh, space is, is, and I noticed you in one of your other um, discussions, you've got a discussion of space which is very extensive, so I won't I won't attempt to even <laughs> Thank you. go that distance. But with regard to space, this space itself is seen to be produced, socially produced. It is seen to be contested. Uh, it is seen to be one of those problematic concepts that ethnographers are using coming out of geography. And geographers are problematizing not only notions of space, but equally notions of place and also scale. So because that, con those, that concept is so um, nuanced now, ethnographers are trying to think, well, what does this mean for the way in which you might think about very, very basic things, such as the notion of the field, for example. What does it mean to go into the field? What does it mean to have a research site? And, and are, do ethnographers themselves actually produce the site? They just don't go into one. They actually produce the site in the process of um, designing a project and, and practicing the research associated with the project. So the other thing about time is that the, the thing about multi-sided ethnography is not obsessed about the time people spend in the site. Uh, traditional, more traditional ethnographers or anthropologists will insist that you've got to spend a lot of time in the site. And if you don't, then your work is likely to be superficial. You're not likely to be uh, get sufficient rapport with the people in the field. You're likely not to develop the sorts of intimacies that are needed to get access to the sort of knowledge and information that you need to get access to. And so time in situ is seen to be one of the most important elements of ethnography. But um, multi-sided ethnographers challenge that uh, on a range of grounds, uh, some of which are about um, accessing, accessing other ways of knowing the site. Uh, so, for example, uh, it might be that uh, um, multi-sided ethnographers are much more comfortable with um, the use of secondary and other sources or the... Or the um, or I'm sort of losing the thread of my argument here, but um, they don't, they don't, they think that it's not just about the quality, the amount of time you spend in the site, or even it, it's partly about the quality of the time you spend in the site, but it's, it's also about the time you spend with, with the data that you produce. And with the data, the data produced, what you do with it. So it's not necessarily so excited about thick description in the purely thick and descriptive terms. It's also about what sort of theories do you bring to bear on the data that you've generated. And you don't need to be spending a lot of time in the field to be, to be reading and thinking with that sort of theory. So, but equally, it might be that um, you're researching something where time... Uh, 
is experienced differently. So time, it might be short time, it might be very fleeting, it might be very sudden and brief encounters, in which case the time you spend in terms of those encounters doesn't need you to be hanging out there for, for a long period of time. In terms of mobility, um, again, it's useful to get back to Clifford's idea of roots, as in R-O-U-T-S, and uh, roots, R-O-U-T-E-S. And the, one of the most interesting things for, for us in the project we're working in is this, uh, the relationship between roots, these two different types of roots. Uh, in, the, in the particular site itself, however you've defined it, but also what are the implications of the ethnographer's roots and roots. So, for example, what does it mean if you come from one particular location and study uh, another location? How do your particular roots, roots impact on, on what you are able to see in the field and what you have great difficulty in seeing? And equally, how did you travel into, to, in order to get into that space? And how does your travel inside, you know, your travel to and from that space impact on your on the ways in which you engage it? So mobility is central to multi-sided ethnography, uh, and mobility is is sort of, if you like, multiply conceived. Right, um, and I guess now is a good time to turn to your work, where you've been working with a, an international team doing. Uh, the multi-sided global ethnography. So perhaps you should say, you could say something about the project, but particularly about why you included this term global um, into this multi-sided ethnography and what that means to, to you and your team. Yes. Well, earlier when I mentioned that, yes, there are some people doing very good traditional ethnographies, um, in studies of elite schools, which is our study, there are a number of really evocative and interesting ethnographies conducted inside individual elite schools. And, but in looking at them, one of the problems with them, well, there were a number of problems with them, but um, that provoked our particular study, one was that they tended to operate with us in a sort of presentism. So they tended largely to look at these schools within a very um, narrow slice of time. But equally, they, they tended to subscribe to what is others called uh, methodological nationalism. So they, they would study one school in one country, but then sort of generalise um, as if, you know, this, sort of, this can be applied to all elite schools in all countries. But the other problem with the literature was that it understood social class and eliteness, and the two terms are obviously different, um, as, as national. So it was interested in national class formations not or national elite formations, not in any um, formations of eliteness or formations of class that might be transnational or have occurred over time and space. So these were the problems with the traditional ethnographies in this particular field, and that's the reason why we, um, we produced what we called um, a multi-sided global ethnography. And just to very quickly describe the project very, very briefly, it involves seven elite schools in seven different countries. And um, all the countries that the schools are involved uh, were are in were part of the former British Empire. And 
what the, we were interested in looking at was the ways in which the British model of public schools, which is a model that has travelled all over the world as the most elite mode of schooling you can get, um, was the model of schooling that travelled to the colonies and was, was picked up and indigenised in different ways in, in, these, in the different colonies that we looked at partly because, of course, the colonies themselves were very different and they had quite different sort of relationships to, to the mother country, the so-called mother country, if you like. Um, so, uh, I mean, that was, that was broadly the study. And um, so we were interested in the ways in which these schools were part of globalising practices over time. So not just contemporary forms of globalisation, but also older forms of globalisation, in other words, earlier colonial, colonial times. And the notion of multi-sided ethnography was very, very useful for thinking about these schools as different sites that we could go into and we could do, you know, perhaps make some comparisons between um, and, you know, look at differences over time and so forth. But nonetheless, it didn't provide a sufficiently useful conceptual structure to think about the global aspects, and we're interested in the global aspects. What holds these, what what holds these schools together, in these different locations, as well as what might make them distinctive. And that's why we turned to Barawoy and his colleague. He's a, he's a sociologist. His colleagues' ideas of global ethnography, and the key concepts there are um, global forces, global connections, and global global imagination. And we brought that to bear upon the idea of uh, multi-sided ethnography. And then we developed a sort of matrix which allowed us to think about the things that are usually identified in elite schools as contributing to class formation. And these things are questions of identity and curriculum and culture and community and nation. But how they are potentially globalised when it comes to global forces global connections and uh, global imagination. So in could you give an example of um, some of the findings that you've uncovered in this multi-year, multi-sided global ethnography um, that makes this quote-unquote global class or global elite uh, as you followed the British public school model? Well, it's difficult to summarize them, um, and I, I won't even try <laughs> As you can imagine, we've got the most incredible archive, and um, and uh, you know I can talk a little bit about you know some of the practice we adopt as a, as an international team, uh, because one of the interesting features of the study was that it involved an international team, and maybe we can go down and look at the different ways in which we worked with questions. Actually, that might be a way to go is to talk about the different ways in which we worked with space and time and mobility. Okay, yeah. So how did your team end up working with those three tropes that have reappeared um, in ethnography? Yes. Well, the, 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 there's two ways to think about it. One is what were we looking at with regard to space and time and mobility? And the other one is what did those things mean for the, for the sort, sorts of ethnographic practices that we adopted? So... When we thought about space, obviously we thought about the British Empire. So we were very interested in the sorts of 
education that was provided in England via these public schools and the history of those public schools, but we're also interested in how through the process, different processes of colonialism, the, this model travelled to these different countries and the grounded, the ways in which when they arrived in these different countries via various carriers of empire who included teachers and principals and um, various other, other figures, how when they arrived in these, schools, in these schools or developed these schools, how did empire become indigenised? What did the schools and the people in them do with these ideas that travelled into the school? Did they change them? Did they adapt them to the locality? Did they take on boards of no, uh, English notions of social class and so on? So, I mean, that's one aspect of space. The other thing with regard to space was the, um, the ways in which we thought about um, the project as multiscalar. So although we were interested in, in globalisation, you know, glo the global, the regional and the national, we didn't want to adopt just a sort of nested notion of scales that is implied in that sort of analysis. So we, we think about the project as sort of multiscalar and, and involving various sorts of scales. So, for example, at the, at the one end of it, we, we looked very close up at what was going on going on inside the schools and we looked at the sorts of borders that were around the schools, the fences and the gates and the sort of border work the schools did uh, in keeping their students in and away from the contagion of them having to associate with lesser, so-called lesser classes. So we looked at the small scale but we also looked at, looked at, um, looked at things on a broader scale. Uh, for example, when we were in Hong Kong, we were interested in in the ways in which the boys in the school in Hong Kong thought about their um, the women who who worked in their homes, who in Hong Kong they're called maids, as I'm sure you know. Uh, yeah, the, the domestic, domestic helpers. helpers. Yes, and we were interested in that because it was a class issue, obviously because it's a gender issue, but equally because it involved a form of globalization of care work. Where poor people, uh, where poor women from countries in the global south usually travel to countries in the global north and provide care to wealthy people, and in the process have to care for their own families at a distance. Now we were interested in, so we were interested in the ways in which the boys thought about their domestic helpers and how they understood them, whether they understood them. And like many um, students in elite schools, they really didn't understand them at all, just as the students in our other schools didn't understand uh, the sort of domestic help that they were provided with or the sort of care work that was provided in school by people who were, who were considered manual workers or, or cleaners or cooks or, or gardeners or you know, people on the gates. By and large, they didn't, these didn't figure in the horizons of these students. So... I mean, what I'm trying to allude to there is that when we when we look at these boys' care work, the, these helpers, they're part of a global um, supply chain of carers. They're not just 
people who are in the locality. So it's one way of understanding in quite subtle ways the ways in which the students are, the schools are linked to globalisation. Um, I mean, that's just one of a number of examples. And, and what of time? Yeah, time, time again, we were not... Uh, in very practical terms, the project was, um, was a five-year project, but we were in the schools over a three-year period. And, and we spent roughly three weeks in each school over a period of, of three years. And so we, in terms of time, we were returning to the school uh, we returned to the schools three times. And this is a very unusual thing for ethnography, as I'm sure you know. And um, this was, ex you know, people, traditionalists might say, well, you know, you wouldn't have had a chance to develop the sort of intimacy that we would otherwise have got. And that may have been the case, although we don't think it was necessarily the case. It's surprising how in intimacy can happen um, more quickly. Uh, and maybe that's a symptom of our times, who knows. But the, but equally, we also felt it was very beneficial for all sorts of ways. One of them was because, say in the first year, we may have been particularly uh, seduced by a particular practice of the school. We might have been blown away by how impressive it seemed on first glance. Going back a second time, we could see what had happened to certain things. Had they changed? Had they fallen in a heap? Had the sort of shiny gloss... Um, dropped away from them so that we were able to see them, you know, with a certain sort of distance. Uh, and one of, the re one of the ways we were able to develop that distance was partly because we were going in over time, but also because we were travelling between the schools. So what we saw in one school, we were able to... It provoked us to think about issues and questions uh, that, uh, it, with regard to the other schools as well. And one example was um, when uh, we were in South Africa, our South African school, and I got very interested in uh, an organisation called Round Square, which to which a number of the elite schools belong. It's a it's an elite global institution which many schools join as a signifier of status and, and connection and so forth. But if I hadn't been in that school, it would not. If I hadn't, uh, and we were able to pick up issues around these global connections of these global organisations the school belonged to, in part because we're in one place and questions arose uh, that we applied to other places. Just to step back from the round square thing, um, it also applied to questions of charity. So this, most of the schools were involved in various forms of charity work, but how these were expressed and how they were um, addressed in, in, in the schools varied. And um, but one aspect of them in terms of globalization was the students going to different countries, uh, usually third world countries, to do um, if care work or, or charity work or what what was called service, service or service learning. And um, and we were interested in different ways in which that that happened across across time and across space. Uh, in terms of mobility, I mean, as the, those comments I've suggested, those, those comments I've just made, what was very obvious to us was that the schools were constantly on the move, as were we, and we were very interested in the different ways in which they were on the move. So ideas were coming into them from all over the world, but equally the teachers were travelling, the princes, principals were travelling, the, the students were travelling, and it wasn't just that the students were travelling 
with regard to the curriculum, various aspects of the curriculum or the extracurricular work. But also many students were travelling to these schools from other places in the globe. So students, for example, from Hong Kong were travelling to England. Students from different parts of sub-Saharan Africa were travelling to the school in, in South Africa. And this is an increasingly significant feature of these elite schools, is that the students are on the move and the schools, uh, wealthy parents, are scouring the globes for schools that, um, that might be the best for their children. And so the schools are now involved in, in a very active, what we call the global uh, elite school market. As you know, this is a podcast for the Comparative and International Education Society. And your project, um, working in those seven different countries, is so ripe for comparison. Um, And I just wanted to ask, as a final question, what sort of lessons or ideas did you learn about the idea of, quote-unquote, comparison doing this multi-year, multi-country study? Well, uh, the first thing is that comparison, in the usual way, it's often thought about isn't sufficient. I mean, while it can be extremely interesting, comparing this with that, um, often attempts to explain why this or that are inadequate if they're, if they're nation-bound or if they're too place-bound. So probably the, the, what we found it really useful was to think about these particular sites, not just as as you can compare a school in Australia to a school in Hong Kong, to a school in India, to a school uh, in the Bar- in Barbados, and not just that you can compare the different ways in which they indigenised uh, the particular um, colonial project via the public school model, but also how you can look at look at the connections between these schools and the forces that or the, between sites that might otherwise just be compared. So rather than thinking of it as a study of seven different multiple sites, probably what makes this global and therefore not just comparative in terms of the sites is that we did look at this, we did bring to the forefront questions of global forces and there, you know, colonialism, capitalism, market forces, the changing nation-state and how that's changed as a result of contemporary globalisation, global connections and how these are manifest and produced in terms of class, class identities and and, uh, class distinctions, and also global imaginations. So, And the global imaginations are the ways in which the schools are inventing themselves according to a particular imaginary that they think um, connects best to uh, future elite formation. So I think if we'd just done a comparative study, what we wouldn't have been able to do is to look at those particular three, three, look through those three lenses, which required us to ask different questions of what was going on in these particular sites, and which would be absent if you just used a a traditional uh, comparison lens. Between, between different sites. Well, Jane Kenway, thank you very much for joining Fresh Ed. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. 
Jane Kenway recently completed a five-year professorial fellowship with the Australian Research Council and is an elected fellow at the Academy of Social Sciences Australia. She is currently an emeritus professor in the education faculty at Monash University. Next week, I speak with Aziz Chowdhury about activism and research. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. You can subscribe to Fresh Ed on iTunes and follow the show on Twitter using the handle at Fresh Ed Podcast. The opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Priming. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and see you next week.